This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dajani. Jamal, we have a great show today. We're going to be covering a lot of territory. You know, we want to talk a little bit about how the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, has been outed yet again in a very interesting article in The Nation by uh, Joshua Leifer about Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the ADL, where he describes the ADL going, quote, full bully. And, you know, we've described on this show over the years, many years now, the kind of racist bullying tactics and the support for white supremacy groups uh, that the ADL has been engaged in. But of course, people haven't typically paid attention to our reports. And now this is coming out in the nation. It's a very, very compelling kind of a, a analysis of the ADL in terms of how they're attacking pro-Palestinian groups and uh, anti-Zionist organizations and labeling terrorists. It's just like outrageous. The ADL should never get a pass on its cover of being a uh, progressive uh, human rights organization. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk a little bit about what's the impact of the Ukraine-Russia war on the long-term global both economy and politics. We have a lot to say about that. Unfortunately, we're not going to have time to talk about the fifth COVID wave. Maybe we'll talk about that later, but I think it's important to put that out there. But before we get to all that, you did a really awesome interview with Melania Ansari. She's the International Advocacy Officer of Adamir, Prisoner and Human Rights Association, about the ongoing human rights violations and abuse and torture of Palestinian political prisoners. That's men, women, and children, which uh, flies under, unfortunately underneath the radar in international uh, organizations in terms of the abuse that uh, Israel continues to engage with in Palestinian political prisoners. That's right, Jess. And uh, it's uh, actually, uh, Milena is is, uh, is now in the United States and she'll, she'll be speaking in Auckland on Thursday and we'll, I'll, I'll mention that later on, later on okay. in the show. Yeah, very uh, excellent for speaker. For those who I've are heard in, her... interested that they yeah. can actually... Uh, interact with her in person this coming Thursday at, uh, at 6.30 p- p.m. Let's watch the interview. This past January, 500 Palestinians held in administrative detention inside Israel began a boycott of Israeli military courts in order to end administrative detention in its current form, whereby Palestinian detainees are systematically denied all legal and procedural safeguards including the rights to be informed of the reason for their arrest and detention, to access legal counsel, and to be brought promptly before a judge. Joining us to discuss this and more, Melina Ansari, International Advocacy Officer at Ad-Damir, Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, a Palestinian organization that works in a, to advance the rights of prisoners through documentation, legal assistance, local and international advocacy, and training and awareness raising. Welcome to Arab Talk, uh, Milena. Thank you, Jamal. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Let me start actually by this, uh, the most recent news that we, we, we actually heard about it right here in the United States, which is Israel 
is trying to criminalize Palestinian civil society, including your organization, Ad-Damir, along with five other Palestinian NGOs detained, uh, designating them as terrorist, terrorist organizations. What are your thoughts on this and why is Israel doing that? Well, to begin with, this is not the first time that the Israeli occupation um, um, silences Palestinian civil society. It's really important to bear in mind that the Israeli occupation and apartheid regime has been systematically targeting and for years Palestinian civil society and human rights defenders, whether it is through um, raids to their offices, arbitrary arrests of their employees, surveillance of the civil society workers. And now in November 2021, um, there was the, the extreme arbitrary and sinister decision to designate these six civil society organizations as terrorist organizations. But it did not stop there even. Um, they used Israeli military orders to also outlaw these organizations in the West Bank. So what this means is that the employees, the offices, and the people that we provide services to are all now at eminent risk of arbitrary arrests, our offices of forcible, for, forcible disclosure. Um, so why I mentioned this is a part of a systematic smear campaign is because the Israeli occupation um, really, when it sees impunity given by the international community, they continue on their widespread attacks and they take it to a whole different level. Designated civil, designating civil society organizations as terrorist organizations aims mainly at three things, isolating the Palestinian people, silencing any opposition of the Israeli settler colonial and apartheid regime, and defunding um, any organizations so they cannot continue the work that they have done. And, so, and they've recently prevented a colleague of yours from traveling. Exactly. Actually, two of the directors of the six organizations were banned from traveling. Sahar was um, denied entry um, to the U.S. through a U.S. airlines, um, although she has a valid U.S. visa. And then Ubay Aboudi, who's the director of Bissan Center, one of the six designated organizations, was um, banned from traveling um, by the Israeli occupation. So we are seeing the, the, the negative impact of this um, designation um, become re more real and more eminent, and not only from the Israeli occupation, but sadly from the United States as well. I mean, you've seen also condemnation of this action by international organizations, by the United Nations and other, um, you know, organizations throughout the world. Is this helping? I mean, do you feel any of this pressure is working or, or is, is Israel is just shrug this off and continue on abusing uh, their authorities? Sadly, I'm not being a pessimist, but really statements of condemnation haven't helped any Palestinian in any way to seek justice and gain accountability for the Israeli occupation. You have bodies like the United Nations, like the Carter Center in the United States, saying we stand with Palestinian civil society organizations, but we see our employees being arrested, still targeted, um, our directors, the head of the organizations being silenced in a, in a really sinister way. 
Um, so honestly, the, the support of con- uh, the, the statements is good on a moral and symbolic way, but without proactive action, really telling Israel there's no basis to your designation. It has been now six months and there hasn't been any concrete evidence or not that I say there is evidence. Um, there hasn't been any concrete um, um, justification to this arbitrary designation. And states are just saying, okay, let Israel do whatever they want. We won't um, implement anything. This is literally giving Israel a green light to continue its systematic silencing of organizations. So what we need now is proactive action. We do not need statements of support. We understand the, the, the international community stands by these organizations because like Al-Haq, one of the leading organizations in the Middle East as a whole, um, has been targeted and and the work that we do is in connection with the United Nations, in connection with many grassroots organizations and civil society organizations. So regarding um, credibility, we understand that we have support, but this support needs to to become proactive action. Sorry, let me just also mention this, that states are also taking negative action against the organizations. One of the six organizations is the Union for Agriculture Work Committees, which works with Palestinian farmers and peasants, especially in Area C, which is a highly intensified area where Israel plans to annex it to um, the state of Israel. The Dutch government, after their own internal investigations, that concluded that we believe there are no ties with this organization, with any military operations. There is no misuse of their funds um, to any operations. And yet they defunded UAC, um, which, which was extremely terrible to the services that they provide and really tying their hands to not be able to continue the work that they do. So we, we see states really bowing down to this kind of bullying to Palestinian civil society. And this is what we need to extremely stop and, and, and actions should be on the other way around, holding Israel accountable, cutting ties with the Israeli occupation that continues to systematically violate Palestinian human rights without any impunity or accountability. And that's why you're here uh, really now in the United States to educate the, the public. I mean, last week we've had the director on this show, the director of a the documentary boycott, uh, basically talking about also how states within the United States are attacking the, the BDS movement and trying to silence the BDS movements and, and critics uh, of Israel at universities, etc., and so this is part of the, the whole larger picture of how um, the, United, the United States and other countries are still aiding and abetting Israel in, in violating these human rights. Uh, let me go back to the crux of the issue, uh, administrative uh, detention. Uh, how does Israel's military judicial system function to perpetuate and expand its application? So to begin with, administrative detention is a policy where the Israeli occupation detains a person without any list of charges and without a fair trial or a trial to begin with. Um, They use secret information that justify that this person allegedly may impose a future risk to the security of Israel. So administrative detention is used against women, children, civil society workers, 
any Palestinian is not exempt from this policy. And with it, it brings too much arbitrariness because as you mentioned, um, neither the legal counsel nor the detainee are ex are exposed to the information that are held against the detainee. So there is no way for, for us as lawyers and as Adamir providing legal support to, um, to do any legal defense in this case. Um, it's also how the Israeli occupation uses it against Palestinians in the West Bank is through Israeli military orders where the military commander issues an administrative detention order then, then, then that's later confirmed by the Israeli military court. So here we see the integral role of each sector of the Israeli occupation, whether it is the occupation forces or the military courts that continue to confirm these orders without any questioning, without really reviewing the secret information trying to challenge it in, in any way. So we have now currently more than 500 Palestinians under administrative detention, and this includes children and women as well. Um, it's extremely problematic because also we were talking about boycotting. Currently, these administrative detainees are boycotting military courts because they understand there's no way for Palestinians to seek justice or any kind of accountability in military courts, where the judge is an Israeli military officer, the prosecutor is an Israeli military officer, the law that is being used is Israeli military laws, and the language is Hebrew in military courts. So it's a whole apartheid apparatus that maintains to suppress and keep Palestinians in military courts. Um, Beit Salem, which is an Israeli human rights organization, um, stated several times that the conviction rate in Israeli military courts is 99.7%. So really seeking any kind of justice in military courts is redundant. And, and that's why the administrative detainees are boycotting military courts. Was there one incident, I mean, f for the recent boycott that happened in January for these 500 administrative uh, detainees to launch uh, the boycott? Was, or, or is it a compilation of, of, of the items that you've just uh, listed? It's definitely a compilation, really, because hunger strikes in the past year were very um, increasing, very much increasing. But it was individual hunger strikes where a, a Palestinian detainee puts his body or her body at, at imminent threat in order to try to fight and challenge this arbitrary detention. But we, we, they, we, the, the detainees soon realize that hunger strikes are only a, a, a temporary solution because the Israeli occupation found ways to freeze the order and then reactivate it. So they haven't been really challenging administrative detention as a policy. And with the increased use of it in a very arbitrary way, um, the, the boycott decision has become, you know, boycott has always been a peaceful protest to challenge um, the sinister decisions of, of any government to begin with. And the occupation is, is one of it. Um, so it's it's just having this idea that nothing is working with the Israeli occupation. So let's take it a, a step further. Um, and it's really important to bear in mind that even inside prison, the administrative detainees are, are taking collective and organized actions in line with the boycott of military courts. So some are refusing prison meals. 
ill prisoners are refusing to take medicine for a certain time. So the prisoner, the administrative detainees are either in Ufar, Naqab, um, or um, or Hadarim. So at each week of the time, there would be organized and collective boycott from inside prison, which we, we haven't seen much organization and c- c- connection between the boycott and, and what's happening inside prison. But this time, it, it's a collective decision. It's organized and steps are being taken in a very structural way. And this is why we say we need attention to this issue. Um, they started their boycott from the 1st of January, and now we are in, in mid-May. So it does need a lot of attention and people taking action against military courts, against prosecuting civilians in front of a judge based on and the occupying powers law. You've mentioned hunger strike, and, and, and this is very important because the uh, while, you know, the issue of Palestinian prisoners, and I have, sadly, I have to say, and, and I'm sure you know that, lacks any media attention, especially in the United States. I don't know about Europe and, and, and the rest of the Western world. And we only hear about these, uh, these uh, the plight of prisoners is through hunger strike and hum- hunger strike tactic, which has proven to be instrumental in leveraging attention of some media coverage. Not a lot, but some. What do you think uh, about this? I mean, and I hate to say it, I mean, to see these prisoners suffer and and basically moments away from from death before they are transferred somewhere else or their demands or part of their demands are met. Unfortunately, your analysis is completely true. We see the international community not caring about Palestinian prisoners the whole time. But when it comes to a hunger strike, when a prisoner is literally facing immediate death at any moment, we see the international community starting to look at prisoners and focus their eyes on it. Um, and this is the issue, honestly, with the Palestinian issue in general. So Gaza is under a land, water and air siege. But when there's war in Gaza, when there are people dying arbitrarily in Gaza, it is when people start focusing on it. So usually the international community just stays silent until there is imminent risk. And this has always been very problematic because the policies are systematic. Detainees are being held in harsh conditions. There are no respect of any of their rights. There is constant medical neglect. But at the end of the day, it is what the international community does when it's only imminent threat that they start moving. Um, And this is why I think they moved away from hunger strikes, um, because it's an individual kind of thing. Um, If it's taken as a collective means, it does target the policy from its root causes and not like a case-by-case basis. And hunger strikes have always been controversial. Like when we do interviews about hunger striking detainees, the question is always, why do Palestinians do that to themselves? But really the question should be, why is Israel doing that to Palestinians where they are put in a situation where the only method to protest against the decisions of the Israeli occupation is to use their bodies. So inside prison, um, the prisoners and the detainees use their bodies to change the power dynamics inside prison, where they become in control of their own life, in control of their bodies. 
Um, and there's no other means because inside prison, again, they're subjected to harsh conditions. There are raids inside prison happening when the prisoners are have no means to uh, protect themselves. So they are pushed to this position to take on hunger strikes. And we have seen the power of hunger strikes. So there's no way to really deny that the Israeli occupation fears this this policy, but it also feels the power of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. So this has been the next step following hunger strikes. Uh, when I talk about also the conditions, because you mentioned about the conditions, although Israel ratified the Convention Against Torture and other uh, cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment of uh, or punishment, uh, CAT, in 1991, the Israeli uh, apartheid state has long argued that the CAT does not apply in all of the occupied Palestinian uh, territory what has been done by Adamir and other uh, human rights organizations to force Israel to comply? So sadly, this forcing Israel to comply doesn't really uh, happen in any way. But we work with the CAT committee real close. The, the issue is there's no there's no justification to what Israel says the CAT convention doesn't apply to, on Palestinian territories because the systematic use of torture and ill treatment is even happening on, let's say, Israeli territories. The most um, obvious means is Al-Maskubiya Detention Center, which is located in Jerusalem. Al-Damir has documented thousands of cases of torture and ill treatment in these detention centers, where the Israeli occupation uses physical torture and also psychological torture. So um, we have been reporting to the CAT convention regarding complaints of torture. Um, Communications through the CAT with the Israeli government has been extremely problematic where they just ignore the complaints. Even on ground, Adamir also files complaints um, towards the the investigative body in Israel of torture and ill treatment. And almost the majority of the cases have been closed, even where there is clear use of torture and ill treatment. So this impunity um, for Israel is given on a national basis and sometimes on an international basis when international law and its power of obligating states to respect it sometimes is very limited. And this is why we say BDS is a form of resistance. So why are countries still having relations with a state that systematically uses torture on, on, a, on a regular way? So, so this comes as an important role. Like what we're seeing in Ukraine and Russia, immediately with the Ukraine-Russia situation, states started sanctioning Russia. Uh, they didn't think twice whether this is the way or not. They immediately started boycotting Russia in football events, in in politics, in everything. And why haven't we seen this encouragement and this excitement to boycott and hold a state responsible when Israel does it on a day-to-day basis on all the Palestinian people, whether in Jerusalem, in the occupied 1948 territories, Gaza, or the or the West Bank? I mean, states and international um, human rights organizations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Beit Salem also have been recognizing and stating that 
based on our legal analysis, Israel is practicing an apartheid regime over the Palestinian people. So how are states still interacting with the with a state that is considered an apartheid regime? That is the question that we also need to focus on. <laughs> That, that's one answer to this uh, would be hypocrisy. We've been talking about this uh, on, on the show and, 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 and you're absolutely right when you talk about the recent designation because this, is, this happened within the past year or so that you have major organizations from the United Nations, from the Rapporteur, from uh, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, their own human rights organization, Beth Salem and, and Yesh Deen, all designating Israel as an apartheid state. And we've seen what happened in this country uh, you know, with, with, when during apartheid South Africa, it's the the total opposite. We haven't seen any. In fact, we are seeing, uh, sadly, again, our uh, politicians and congressmen and congresswomen condemning that designation and vilifying these organizations and asking to cut funding to these organizations. I mean, it's absolutely mind mind boggling. To, to gain credibility, I mean, uh, Palestinians have also to look in the mirror. We cannot leave that this topic off, off the table. And I know that Adamir also works to support prisoners held in Palestinian prisoners prisons. And so uh, what are the most pressing human rights issues vis-a-vis arrests, interrogations, and detentions as conducted under the jurisdiction of the Palestinian Authority? Um, of course, we have to look in the mirror and really um, acknowledge the, the injustices that happen in Palestine as well. Um, and this is why I truly believe in the work of Al-Damir, because as you mentioned, we don't look at political prisoners only held by the Israeli occupation, but from the Palestinian Authority as well. Um, so it was it was only increasing the violations of Palestinian political prisoners held by the Palestinian Authority the past year, uh, which was following the the killing of uh, the, the the political critic uh, Nizar Banat, who was also um, 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 going under the, the the candidacy of the Palestinian Legislative Council member. Um, so in in 2021, we have seen these violations increase, and mostly it is harsh detention conditions inside prison where it does not meet any adequate standard living for for any prisoners inside these detention centers. Um, Of course, there is ill treatment uh, for the detainees, um, but that's mainly most of um, the violations that the Palestinian Authority um, violates for the rights of detainees. We do see the use of torture, but it is definitely not a systematic or widespread um, matter that reaches any um, uh, like highlighting but Adamir also files complaints to the Palestinian um, um, national investigative bodies for torture complaints Um, so it's it's mainly harsh detention conditions use of ill treatment um, and sadly we have seen relatively a, a similar use of techniques against Palestinian detainees and political prisoners by the PA that has been used by the Israeli occupation. And that also needs to to stop in in, in many ways. Have they been receptive to your uh, investigation and complaints? I mean, do they see the damage they caused to to your work by replicating the... uh, 
uh, atrocities committed by the Israelis. Definitely. The, the difference between the Israel occupation and the Palestinian people is at the end of the day, the Palestinian Authority does look itself in the mirror. Yani, I, I hate to say this, and, and I know there is so much um, arbitrariness by the Palestinian Authority. But at the end of the day, we are talking about Palestinians amongst themselves. And we need unity together in order to fight one opposition, one apartheid regime. Um, and this unity I'm talking about, we have seen in the May 2021 unity uprising, where Palestinians from all over and even in the diaspora had all their eyes open when the forcible dispossession of families in Sheikh Jarrah was happening, where, re where repercussions against Palestinians was happening all across Palestine. So I do believe here we should just focus on the unity of Palestinians against one opposition, and which is the occupying power and settler colonial um, regime that is the state of Israel. Are you optimistic about seeing any change from the powers to be, such as the United States, the European Union, to change their attitude and start paying attention to what's happening on the ground and, and start censoring basic or putting imposing sanctions on Israel? Or do you feel, which uh, that's part of a topic that we discuss here on the show, that it seems that the only thing that's working is, is BDS? My opti optimism or belief is not in any government. It's not in any state, but it is in the people in these states. Um, I'm very optimistic that the American people are starting to be more aware, are starting to ask questions and challenge their own government. So, and this is in the EU as well and in most countries around the world. So, and, and this is why the work that we do is important because we don't only speak to politicians, we don't speak to lawmaking powers, we speak to the people because we believe in the power of the people. So I'm, I'm really optimistic about the people's power in putting pressure on their own governments. And this I've seen in the World Social Forum in Mexico City just a few, a week ago, right. where, where solidarity movements and grassroots are so powerful and they are eager to take action and put pressure on their own governments. And they acknowledge, they are aware of what's going on and they understand the root causes of a settler colonial project. So it has made me optimistic that the people when, and we have seen liberation movements and revolution movements, it all starts with the people. The government, the politicians are all too fixed on politics, but the people are eager and have hope in justice and accountability. Um, so my answer is, I believe in the people. I'm optimistic that the people are moving, the people are speaking up, um, and that's enough for me to keep on going and keep on moving with the work that we do. Well, you're doing an incredible job and I can keep talking to you forever about this topic. This is a real important topic, but uh, for our listeners in the Bay Area here, you'll be in Oakland at the Eastside Cultural Center this Thursday, May 12 at 6.30 p.m. to talk about this in depth and also to take uh, questions from the audience so you'll answer their questions. And uh, what's it, what cities will you be visiting next after Auckland? 
Um, sadly, I'm only in San Francisco and Oakland area. area. Um, this has been a very quick trip. It's just because we were in Mexico City in the World Social Forum and we thought a quick U.S. trip to San Francisco where most of our organizations and allies and partners um, are working there. Um, so sadly, it's just in that time. I do encourage people to come, listen, challenge, question, learn more, because spreading awareness starts like this. You need to take action, but before you need to understand the situation in order to take action that really helps the Palestinian people. Um, I think it's an excellent way to come, and I've been seeing a lot of support in Mexico City, and I'm hoping to also see it in, in Oakland um, as well. Melina Ansari, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's the voice in the face of Melania Ansari from Adamir. You know, Jamal, I've I've interviewed former Palestinian political prisoners. I've digested the reports. I know that they use torture, banned torture techniques against men, women, and children. Both But physical hear- and psychological. Exactly, physical and psychological. And I, I might add that in, in many ways, the psychological torture techniques that the apartheid regime, that the Israelis use, uh, are you know not that different from the enhanced interrogation and torture program that the United States used you know, after 9-11. So which many people have argued that the United States uh, kind of learned from the Israeli tactics. Um, you know, it's pretty devastating that, uh, you know, even though Israel gets kind of uh, noted and documented as an apartheid state, what doesn't get as much notation is its use of torture against political prisoners. It's well, pretty- I think the plight of po- political prisoners in Palestine's are hardly covered in Western media, you especially in the United States. The only time you hear about it is when a prisoner goes on a hunger strike. And even uh, when uh, he or she does that, you get very little coverage. Yeah, exactly, Jamal. But, uh, you know, the, the fact that the, the uh, Israeli apartheid regime and their military apparatus actually torture children is one thing that is particularly alarming. I mean, that yes, they torture adult men, they torture women, uh, tortures banned internationally, but the fact that they will torture children as young as 13, and in some cases even younger, um, hold them incommunicado, keep them from their parents, keep them from uh, you know legal representation, And, and create the sense of fear, loathing, anxiety, and the fear of grave bodily injury is truly outrageous. And uh, it's really tragic that the international community, despite calling Israel out as an apartheid regime, continues to kind of not give as much attention to the torture that it engages with, which is, you know, again, banned under international law. You're absolutely right. Moving on to our next topic, uh, Jess, the ADL. Uh, do you know what the ADL stands for? Just, just to so if our anti-defamation listeners... league. Well, actually, it has been now modified to apartheid defense league. <laughs> just, <laughs> and I'm not the creator of this name, by the way. I'm borrowing this this new. The, uh, definition, but it, it it's, it's a actually, good definition. It it's is a good actually definition. the real definition, you know. And and this is 
again, one of the saddest stories uh, and, and media failure because I know how many times have you watched CNN and other networks where they bring uh, Greenblatt and other ADL experts to talk about different human rights violations or, or you know, anti-Semitism, etc. When we know very well that uh, the ADL has dedicated a long, it has a long history of uh, anti-Muslim rhetoric, Islamophobia, anti-Palestinian, conflating uh, the criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. And this is the latest thing. So this is the latest thing that its CEO, Mr. Greenblatt, designating anti-Zionist and Palestinian solidarity groups as equivalent, yes, and this is what equivalent. he used, to Nazis. It, to Nazis. This is, this is his terminology. So if you're a critic of Israel, it's not enough to be, to be labeled as an anti-Semite, but now he wants you to have the same you description know who, of Nazis. You know what, Jamal? It sounds like Greenblatt is taking the Putin playbook. You know, Putin is calling, uh, you know, Ukrainians who are defending their sovereignty and defending themselves. Uh, his justification is that the Ukrainians are Nazis. So it seems like Jonathan Greenblatt has taken the Putin playbook or the Israeli pay- playbook, rather, and condemning anybody who is a critic, who is a critic or who attempts to advocate for Palestinian self-determination or is critical of Israeli apartheid practices. I mean, Jonathan Greenblatt, uh, Jamal, has stooped to a new low. This article by Joshua Liefer uh, was really impressive. It really documented extensively how he has gone to the dark side and, and uses the ADL's cover as a, uh, a, as, a, as a social advocacy, you know, defending First Amendment rights, uh, attacks, things like that, really, you know, using that as a cover to attack uh, critics of the apartheid regime. It's a it's a very good article, but you know we need to remind our listeners how the ADL operated in San Francisco in the 1980s, Jamal, which we have reported on extensively. Well, I mean, I mean, go even earlier than this because it's uh, since at least the 70s. The ADL uh, used the history as a it's, as a civil rights organization as a screen for basically uh, flagrantly. This is from the article right wing politics in uh, in on Israel, and then you talk about the in in the eighties, and that's important because that's that's relates to the San Francisco Bay area here, where it not only it masked Israel atrocities. But it also cooperated and collaborated with the South Africa regime, spying, regime, spying right. on civil rights groups right here in the United States and in the San, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and they were sued. in In the 1990s, the ADL settled a lawsuit after U.S. anti-apartheid activists accused the organization of hiring former intelligence agents to spy on them, including a San Francisco police officer. San Francisco police officer right here, or a former San Francisco police officer, was under their payroll, basically, doing their dirty work, spying on on both critics of Israel, many of whom are uh, Arab Americans or Palestinian Americans, who 
you know, just for a discussion about uh, Israeli atrocities will be stopped at Ben Gurion Airport or, or will be arrested, and uh, and at the same time spying on uh, civil rights groups and individuals who were critics of apartheid South Africa, and and this went on uh, uh, through the whole period under. Uh, uh, Greenblatt's uh, predecessor, Abe Foxman, if you, re- if you, if you remember right. him. of course. And uh, I should add also, uh, and according to the article, not only this, but also they've targeted uh, progressive and left-wing Jewish academics on, on college campuses. And well, again, Jamal, to discredit yeah. them, and not only discredit them, but call them call themselves hating Jews and so forth. So they were hitting on all fronts to basically create this facade that Israel is a democracy and anyone who criticizes Israel is an anti-Semite. Well, Jamal, the article really points out how the ADL has become a front for white supremacist rhetoric. And and let's also not, not shy away from the reality that the ADL has footholds, and not only in Washington, D.C., but in most state capitals. You know who is on most committees uh, at state capitals in the United States um, monitoring textbooks for racism is the ADL. And they have uh, pointed out on multiple occasions and uh, targeted uh, teachers who have promoted a kind of more balanced view of the uh, of the question of Palestine in the in classrooms, going after teachers, going after curricula, going after faculty, as you said. I mean, basically, Jamal, the ADL is a front group uh, for 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 basically right wing extremist views supporting the apartheid regime of Israel. That's why this article in the Nation is is very timely, very important. We want to encourage our our listeners and our viewers to really do a deep dive into into the article. But I want to say to you, Jamal, or ask rather, who's going to pick this up? Do you think CNN, ABC, you know, CBS, anybody's going to pick up and criticize legitimately the ADL for their hypocrisy? Absolutely not. In fact, they will be doing the opposite. They will be buttressing their claims. They will be uh, whitewashing basically their uh, their tainted history, yeah, yeah. and and uh, I mean the list goes on. I mean we could talk about this for forever. You know, like uh, we didn't even mention their basically uh, how they were egging uh, the uh, basically New Yorkers uh, and pre- prevented. Uh, the uh, the mosque in downtown Manhattan. Right. Uh, so they were behind this and behind this whole anti uh, anti Muslim and Islamophobic behavior. But most importantly, just you said something which is that's basically the premise of the article, which is now they have stooped to a new law uh, by saying you know or equating a critics of Israel of being Nazis. Uh, meanwhile, not being uh, outspoken about those neo-Nazis, uh, you know, that who marched in uh, uh, Charlottesville, if you recall, uh, uh, they were silent exactly. and quiet about this. And now they are taking a, a chapter from Putin and basically claiming anyone who is criticizing Israel is a Nazi. I, and- I think they're taking the Putin playbook, Jamal. But here's the irony. Putin took the Israeli playbook. 
So Putin took the Israeli playbook, and now the ADL is taking the Putin playbook for how to uh, address people who are who have legitimate criticism of regimes or policies that are clearly, uh, you know, anti-democratic and and you know, kind of theocratic or uh, you know, thuggish. And I think Putin and Naftali Bennett are are kind of uh, very close allies. And uh, I guess it's no surprise that Jonathan Greenblatt is taking uh, taking lessons from Vladimir Putin in this regard. I. I want to really kind of, you know, it's a very good article. I'm glad we're talking about it, but the silence in the corporate and mainstream media and how the ADL gets a pass, not only in the media, but in all state capitals is very disturbing. Even in California, Jamal, where, you know, there's the patina of progressiveness. They are still on the governor's uh, task force for monitoring task uh, textbooks in schools for racist, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, language. It's 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 outrageous. It's, it's like the fo- it's it's sickening. Not just no. Outrageous. It's the fox. It's it's the fox or the foxman guarding the hen house. I should say. So um, well, you ridiculous. mentioned mentioning Vladimir Putin because we have few minutes. We need to talk about this, and of course, yeah. uh, just uh, he recently spoke victory day. Uh, vi- victory, victory day, day. Today, yes. yes. Monday, he hailed uh, his country's army for fighting for the motherland. And that's another, like, whenever people start talking about the motherland and fatherland, it reminds me again of uh, Nazi Germany in a way, you know, yeah. those those claims. But he was he delivered a, a very defiant speech at the annual Victory Day commemorations in Moscow and said that, they, or depicting that his invasion of uh, Ukraine as an extension of the struggle against Nazism in Europe. So going back, people who you like to use this uh, excuse or this pretext were fighting, you know, Nazism, right? So that's basically uh, what he talked about. And uh, he did not claim victory. He didn't go like, oh, you know, we won, we're victorious and so forth. But... um, And he did not call for a wider uh, mobilization of the war or or uh, enlisting more, uh, you know, Russians to fight in the war. He didn't talk about a nuclear strike, which that's uh, on everybody's mind. But nevertheless, he, you know, he's continuing on his plan and on... It's not stopping, Jamal. ...on, on his uh, basically goals, which I don't know when they're going to come to an end. And uh, we wanted to talk a little bit because I was like... You know, people are, I think they're starting now to feel the impact aside from the human suffering and the carnage and and then the the destruction. And people are looking at this war. When we started talking about it several weeks ago, a lot of people were thinking, oh, it's going to be a week, maybe two weeks, and he'll achieve his goal and everything will go back to normal. But it is ongoing. And no one is talking about the long term. We're talking about the short term. Like what's happening, you know, to to the Ukrainians? What's happening to the refugees? But no one talk, is talking about the long term impact. For example, not only the human uh, impact which we're witnessing, but also the uh, economical in- impact that's affecting uh, Europe, Eastern Europe, Western in the Europe, world. and the world in in general. 
Well, Jamal, I think that's an excellent point, actually, and and we're already we're already seeing the profound, immediate imp- economic impact. We're seeing a political impact. We're seeing the human suffering impact. You know, tens of thousands of Ukrainians have died. Hundreds of thousands uh, have lost their homes. Millions have been displaced, both internally and externally. And you know what. What originally was, in fact, uh, quote, a war between uh, Russia and Ukraine has expanded into this proxy war between Russia, the United States, NATO and the EU. And, you know, the EU just this week announced that by the end of the year, they're going to stop, you know, uh, using any Russian oil. They will continue to use Russian gas. But in the meantime, Jamal, we see gas prices up. We see diesel prices up. We see natural gas prices up. Uh, and by the way, all of that benefits Putin. That that the high price of gas, which is over a hundred oil, is over a hundred dollars a barrel now, benefits thuggish regimes like Putin, like Saudi Arabia, like the Gulf countries. While the rest of the world is going into an economic slowdown. Now Russia is having an economic slowdown. Europe and the United States has an economic uh, slowdown. This is also happening at a time when China is in lockdown and suffering from an economic slowdown. I hate to say this, Jamal, but I feel like the long-term economic uh, view of this is pretty pretty grim right now. I think we're headed for a not just a severe local national recession, but a global downturn in our economy. Well, uh, now we're getting the reports on the first quarter of 2022. Yeah. So, for example, we're talking about the combatants, especially Ukraine. Ukraine's economy has shrunk by 40% in the first quarter compared to 16% of last year. They weren't doing yeah. that well last year because of COVID. And so now this is the first quarter. It's, it's 40% and it's accelerating uh, you know, it's going to be even worse. Like maybe the second quarter continues, it's going to shrink, uh, you know, by 60% and to zero, you know, like like totally uh, devastated. And the Europeans are feeling the impact, you know, uh, especially in countries other than Germany, even though Germany is feeling the impact, but apparently Germany can sustain uh, the losses because they have a lot of reserves. But other countries... Like you mentioned, gas prices have fluctuated by as much as 70% on a single day. On a That's single right. day. That's right. So we, you and I, uh, I think, uh, are privileged living, you know, I mean, our gas prices here, even pe- though people complain the United States now, but in, in normal times, whenever you travel to Europe, whenever I travel to Europe, we had that sticker shock filling right. a car. I mean, say, we can't complain because an average... Gas prices in the United States, $3. And then you go to Europe, they are already $6. And now they are $6 here. And then in Europe, they are $12. That's right. No, that's exactly right, Jamal. When you convert the liter into gallon and and so forth. So, uh, But here's the thing, Jamal. It's not going to stop. And and you said this in Putin's speech. He gave no indication whatsoever that he was going to stop. He's going after the East the south and the southeastern part of Ukraine. He wants a total corridor from, from, from Russia down to the, you know, down to the Baltic. 
He wants the land and sea corridor completely under his control. He's not going to stop, even though, you know, there are these signs, you know, in the media saying how he let people, you know, uh, leave the Avastol, you know, steel factory so people could escape, you know, civilians could escape. He's still bombing the steel factory to to, to nothing. He's still sending missiles into civilian territories. Anybody, and we've been saying this for a long time, who believes that he's going to let up is, is really delusional. This could go on for months and years, even with the military support of the United States, NATO, and the EU. I think, Jamal, and I say this every week, and I think we're on the same page, it's going to get a lot worse. It, it is, is going to get a lot of worse. And, and then I want to say one final thing here, and this is according to an economist uh, I've been reading. Uh, the sanctions are not working. They're not. Yes. They're not working. They're actually backfiring. They're hurting Europeans. They're hurting right. actually the economy in the United States. They're hurting other countries because apparently Putin has been circumventing these sanctions through India and China. So, so in a way, yes, it, it, there were there are certain things, but it, but in order for sanctions to work, to, to work, he has to be totally uh, isolated. But and, that's not and happening. He has to be totally isolated that he cannot import uh, products from outside to let's say uh, you know replenish what he's spending and so forth. But his his now has increased import and export business with India, which is. Uh, an ally of the United States and the West, so they're kind of some uh, ally. Yeah, some so ally. They're, they're actually having. He has increased that uh, extremely, and we know China, you know, because uh, there is no love lost between the United States and China. So, so as long as these two corridors, talking about corridors, are open, the impact actually is uh, affecting Europe in general. Much more, uh, much more than it's affecting him. And so he, in other words, he can go on forever. Well, Jamal, I just want to point out one statistic. Before the war in Ukraine, the price of oil per barrel was around $40 to $60. It's over $100 per barrel right now. So I, I think your analysis and this economist is exactly right. He's actually doing better in some ways because the price of oil, his major contributor to his GDP, uh, he's able to still sell oil. People are buying it on the black market. China and India are buying it at a much higher price. So he's raking in the money right now, Jamal. I, I have to agree, man. I have to agree. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com. And we will talk to you next week. See you next week. Mm-hmm.